This is the Military Bottom Line Podcast, episode 69. I think it's it's a tough question, and, it, and it's one that comes up not just in the military, I guess, but it's, you know, what is the value of service mm. when you're you're not helping yourself necessarily, and how much are you willing to pay? Welcome to the Military Bottom Line Podcast, where we learn from veterans and those currently serving how to make the most out of a military contract. We're here to motivate, inspire, and help you leverage your service to positively impact you professionally, personally, and financially during your military career and beyond. Welcome to the show and thank you all for listening. This is your host, Jason Birds. I apologize this week for some reason, right after we finished the conversation, Phil and I, uh, Zoom totally crapped out on me. So I do not have the video for those on YouTube, but for those listening on the podcast platforms, the episode will be the same. The audio is the same. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, the audio was captured. And that is what is most important for a podcast. So I am so grateful for you guys tuning in, and I'm looking forward to you guys hearing Phil's story. But before we get into that, I want to let you guys know, if you're listening, if you're in the military right now, or maybe transitioned out already, and you have lessons learned, and you have a message that you want to share to those either thinking about joining the military or those in the military, I want you to know that you are welcome and encouraged to reach out to me via Instagram or email militarybottomline at gmail.com and let me know that you're interested in being on the show. I'm always looking for inspirational guests with their own spin on things and their own wisdom, their own advice, and their own experience. So don't be shy. I'd love to talk to you and uh, don't feel, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, I'm excited to talk to, I'm excited to let you guys hear uh, fill my conversation. And after the, the, episode after the in, um, after the interview, I kind of made a mental note and Phil and I were discussing it. It was a, a rather late interview compared to normal. And normally it's like, you know, maybe morning or afternoon. Uh, but Phil and I met later on a Friday night. And it was interesting that I feel like the ones I do late at night typically end up far more introspective and philosophical than uh, than other episodes. And so I really enjoyed my conversation with Phil and I can tell that he's a very well thought out individual and he's got a lot of, uh, you know, he's had time to reflect on his service and reflect on his, on his experiences. Um, and throughout the episode, we talk about, you know, his reason for joining via Dartmouth, ROTC, ultimately going into special forces and is now transitioned out after 10 plus years and is at one of the leading MBA and law schools in the nation. And so he's had a career of excellence, really, going, going from um, high achieving accomplishment to high achieving accomplishment. And so he's pretty inspirational, and I, I would encourage you guys to hear a story. And I hope you guys stick around to the end. So enjoy. Good evening, Phil. How you doing, man? Uh, not too bad. I'm a... Uh pounding a coffee right now <laughs> i think uh, we're both in the same boat as far as uh it's the end of a long week and we both have small children mm. so yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely uh yeah I'm, I'm super appreciative of you joining me uh later on a friday night 
thankfully we're both in the same time zone so that kind of makes things slightly easier yeah but, it's my pleasure yeah thank you i was uh introduced to you by pete uh pete campbell from a couple episodes back and uh really enjoyed hearing his story and i know you guys worked together for a little while and met each other in the army and so i've heard great things about you but um i'm excited to kind of hear your your story as a whole and uh hear kind of like how you ended up in the army in the first place like what was that motive yeah well yes yeah pete and i uh know each other pretty well because we did some of our training in the army together too and then we're stationed out in okinawa together for several years so we're uh pretty close friends cool. But I guess as far as the military piece of it, um, just to give you wave tops, um, I'm originally from Connecticut, um, oldest of three kids. And so uh, going into college, I think that was the start of my uh, interest in the military. Um, So eventually in college, I did ROTC, commissioned in 2010, the Army uh, in Armour. And then did that for a few years. In 2014, went to Special Forces Selection and passed. And so 2015, started the Q course, graduated in 2017, was stationed out in Japan with First Group, and then eventually separated in 2020, last October. Mm. And um, since then, I've been a stay-at-home dad until very recently when I started uh, graduate school last week. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's ten years kind of thrown into uh, thirty seconds. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, I, you know, there's there's some huge accomplishments in there. So, um, you know, when you said that college was kind of the beginning of thinking like joining the military, um, what was the catalyst for that? I mean, if there if that wasn't on your mind prior to college, what changed when you arrived at college that made you want to go ROTC? Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll start with the caveat because I know um, a lot of what you usually talk about is kind of the practicalities of mm-hmm. joining the military and kind of the pros and cons. Yep. And for me, it was kind of like a um, more of a lifestyle question, maybe. And so, you know, from here on out, whatever I say, I don't want to overly romanticize the military, I guess. <laughs> Fair. But um, yeah, growing up, uh, I guess I had a specific kind of upbringing. Mm. Um, you know, my parents were immigrants from Korea. And so I kind of had in some sense, like a kind of a stereotypical outlook. Um, so I played music growing up, you know, piano and violin. I didn't play sports, but I think by the time I was in high school and looking at college, I think I realized that uh, the way I was raised wasn't necessarily what I wanted for myself. Mm. Um, and the specific catalyst was actually, I don't know if they still do this, but I think it was the summer after my junior year of high school. Um, I went to something called the West Point Summer Leadership Seminar, I think. It's just like a recruiting thing where you go out for, I think, a few days and they give you a taste of what it's like to go to West Point and be in the army, I guess. Um, But I remember going out there and the the way I got into that was, I think it was like a random mailing or something. I'm not sure, but somehow um, my parents heard about it and just kind of 
um, put it out there like, Hey, you know, this looks interesting. Why don't you go do it? Cause I had no idea what the heck it was. Mm. It just said leadership seminar. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yeah, I went out there and just, uh, kind of fell in love with it. Mm. Um, you know, as, um, I mean, I was a pretty young person at that point, but you know, like you're out there, you're doing PT, they're yelling at you, you're in the rain doing whatever. And it was just really different from anything I'd experienced before. Um, and I really liked it. So initially I wanted to go to West Point. Um, but when, uh, I guess during the application cycle, my senior year, I wasn't 18 yet. And so my parents weren't signing off on any of my paperwork. Mm. And so that kind of fell through. Um, so I ended up going to Dartmouth for college and pretty much as soon as I got to campus, I signed up for army ROTC. Um, and also this might be, I guess, slightly dated. I don't know how they do it now, but at the time you could try it out without actually committing. I think there was like a time limit, practically speaking of when you had to sign the contract, uh, because you couldn't go to kind of like a, uh, their capstone, like uh, training events until you'd actually sign on the dotted line. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that for the first year without committing. And then at the start of my sophomore year, I actually signed a contract and so they paid for school, at least for the tuition portion of it. And I think that varies by school too. Yep. As far as some programs, they're able to cover your living expenses as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, everything started there. And I would say personally, I had a really great experience in ROTC. Cool. Was there, when you made that decision, other than kind of like looking for something different than what you were used to growing up, was there something specific? that you knew about the military that you were hoping to achieve or experience or accomplish? Like, I, I feel like, you know, some people join like, Oh, like I want to go to war or like I want college paid for, or like there's something very specific that they're going after. Was, was that something that you experienced or not really? Um, I think the war portion of it was definitely in the back of my mind. Cause you know, that was, I graduated high school 2006. So, you know, like Iraq and Afghanistan are all over the news. Um, And they continued to be while I was in college. Um, And then I think another big part of it was, and maybe this is just me making up stories in retrospect, but Mm -hmm. um, I think at the time, the way I looked at it was my life is a certain way. I am a certain way. It's really hard to kind of like really radically change things around. Um, whether it's a matter of like the personal habits you're seeking to change or kind of the direction of life is headed in. Um, and the way I saw if I joined the army, you're literally signing a contract. Mm. Um, you're basically forcing yourself kind of backing yourself into the corner as far as, um, you are making this choice for yourself. You're obligating yourself to it. Of course, I'm probably going to have doubts and regrets later as I'm going through this difficult unfamiliar process. Um, but you know, you have no way of backing yourself out of it in the future. And Mm -hmm. for me, at least the way, um, I broke it down in my mind, usually you think of it as I'll do RTC graduate. And then you owe four years back active duty is I think the typical contract for ROTC. Mm -hmm. So I just thought to myself, yeah, I can do that. I can do four years. Um, I might not be the best suited to this kind of work, but I certainly want to try and, um, yeah, see where it leads me, I guess. Hmm. So 
so yeah, I mean, you signed up for four years and, and you kind of went in open-minded, like you said, see where it leads you. Um, and what'd you say you, your first job was when you went in? Well, I, when I commissioned, actually, I commissioned into armor, armor, which is, you know, typically tanks, um, and in the army, like scout cavalry. Gotcha. Um, but when I first started ROTC, I was really looking at stuff like, uh, signal or military intelligence mm. kind of more of a support role um which i guess is a whole nother story too but i mean that was kind of stuff that was more aligned with um the kind of person i was coming in mm. but i remember the first rtc instructor i had as well as the last they're both um in mos's in occupational specialties that were armor coded um, and the first instructor i had i still remember him it was this captain um, who'd been in the invasion of Iraq and was doing his grad degree now at a local school at Norwich university. Um, and as part of, I guess what he was doing there, he taught RTC on the side, but mm. um, long story short, I just had some really inspirational instructors, but this guy in particular, I remember um, he had like one of those three panel poster boards, you know, for RTC set up in the school cafeteria. I remember when I walked in like in the first week and I knew I'd been planning to like, you know, seek out these folks at some point. So I talked to him, told him I was interested. And he, you know, the first thing he did was say, uh, you know, the next day, however uh, far in advance, Hey, let's meet up and do a diagnostic PT test. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I still remember, I mean, I, I understand more about what was going on now looking back, but, um, you know, wasn't an athletic person. And so I showed up and I did less than 20 push ups. I want to say less than 10 sit ups. My two mile run was, I don't know, like 20 minutes or something crazy. Wow. I didn't have a point of reference because I don't think at that point I'd necessarily looked up what the PT standards were or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but I guess what I appreciate looking back is if I were him, you know, if I were Captain Hale, yeah. um, I don't know that I would have been so supportive of this, you know, of this person who just walked through the doors and was just so far off passing a PT test. Mm. Um, but I specifically remember, uh, it didn't phase him at all. Like there was zero negativity. He just kind of recorded the results. And then afterwards talked to me about a PT plan. How do we work this going forward? Um, and it all just started there where basically over the course of those four years, I had him, and two other instructors. Um, and they just kind of built me up, cool. which I didn't appreciate at the time, how much, uh, building up they really did and mentoring. Mm. Um, but it basically got me to the point where by the time I graduated, I wanted to go into armor basically to kind of emulate them. Mm. Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty uh good Testament to a good mentor, you know? Um, mm. and building you up and, and not, not giving you like a, uh, a wrath of crap for, for not doing well <laughs> a PT tests right out of the gate. So, uh, that's pretty cool. And I, and I imagine that that resulted in like, you know, not only going from Intel to armor, but like the, the path that, and the trajectory sent you on into special forces also like, was that on your radar prior to your time as an armor? 
Not well, not really. Although I will say, I think in middle school, for whatever reason, our school library just had a ton of Tom Clancy books. Mm. I think I read all of them. So that was probably an unhealthy influence on things. But um, no, it wasn't really on my radar. And overall, it was just, I think what happened was, you know, the more you do things, you just naturally build up confidence. And I think um, it widens kind of your horizons as far as like what you think is possible for yourself. Mm. Um, it's a natural process. I mean, what really sped it along was having other people who kind of like took an interest in me and helped me. Um, I guess the other thing that comes to mind is I specifically remember, I think, and I'm not sure if they still do this, but I think, uh, some SF guys towards the end of their careers, um, kind of like, uh, I guess an opportunity they have near the end before they retire is they can go teach ROTC sometimes. Mm. So I remember our ROTC program was a satellite of Norwich university, which is a, I think what they call it is a senior military college. Um, so I remember they had two green berets there. I think they were both master sergeants uh, who were post team times. They'd already, you know, served on ODAs and this was like before they retire. Um, and I specifically remember kind of having interactions with one of them at different points uh, while I was doing RTC um, and that making an impression on me. Mm. I guess I haven't thought about that in a while, but um, specifically he was, he was a big guy, but he was very soft spoken. Um, I guess this is maybe a common reaction people have, but not what you'd expect when you think of a special forces soldier. He was really easy to talk to, approachable. Mm. Um, And I guess, interestingly, I mean, he was probably just making small talk, but I remember he talked to me about selection, what that was like, and kind of, um, I guess it was kind of a soft pitch as far as, hey, this might be something you're interested in down the line. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, I guess is good business. Looking Mm. back, you know, I don't know what business Mm -hmm. he had, uh, making that pitch to someone like me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I still remember that conversation. So, so then that bug was planted uh, in college also. So I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to get, paint a picture of, you know, you went in and you were thinking like four years and then move on, but something within the four years developed in your, you know, your appreciation or your desire to, you know, continue moving in the military um, built. And so like, what, what was your first four years like? And where, where in that timeline did you decide, like, I'm going to, I like this, I'm going to keep going and pursue like that next level. Hmm. Um, well, overall, what was it like? Um, I was stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky, which they used to have third brigade of first infantry division out there. And it doesn't exist anymore because it was, uh, I don't know what the proper term is, but it was demobilized after um, our 2013 deployment. Um, I think the experience, it was, it was really good. Um, Overall, you know, I learned a lot during my time as a Lieutenant and I got to do my job, I guess, in some sense, you know, at the time, I think 2000s, early 2010s, it was fairly common, at least in the army for, in the brigade combat teams, I guess is the construct that they were using. I don't know what they use now, but basically if you were in a brigade combat team, it was like a deployable line unit, an infantry brigade combat team. Um, so for my unit, 
you know, it was kind of like you deploy for 12 months, which eventually the army scaled back to nine months. Hmm. Um, you'd come back for a year, but that whole year that you're back, you'd know that you're going to go back next year. Um, and so it was a very, uh, purposeful environment, I guess. Hmm. Um, so 2010, yeah, I got out of training and as soon as I finished the initial training for armor, my unit was already in Afghanistan. So I went up and linked up with them, um, came back and pretty much knew that the following year we're going to go again. And so I think that kind of puts you in a certain kind of mindset. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like, did, did you, did you like knowing that as soon as you came back, like, Oh man, like I got to do that all over again next year. I mean, what, like, what was your mindset behind that? After, after a deployment where you're like, I'm good. <laughs> or did you, did you want to go back and you're ready to go? Yeah. I think, for me at that point in my life, and I'll explain why I say it that way, but mm-hmm. I was really excited to go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was what I wanted to do. You know, yeah. you sign up and at least the way a lot of people think about it, a deployment is when you get to do your job, yeah. um, which I think there's a lot to pull apart in that way of thinking too. But mm-hmm. uh, I guess in contrast also, you know, now that a bit of time's gone by, I uh, have a little bit more perspective as far as, especially the NCOs, you know, where you're spending your entire career on the line and that's your umpteenth deployment. You know, you, I don't think you're necessarily as excited to go back again. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me personally, I was really um, motivated by that. Mm, cool. cool. Um, and so you did two deployments in your first four years. Am I understanding that correctly? I did, but the first one was a pretty short one because I just caught the tail end. Okay. Um, and then I guess the thing I realized um, during that time was uh, I guess how much I enjoyed being in a platoon. Mm. I guess being around teammates or soldiers. Yeah. Because um, they really do become like a family to you. Mm. I mean, obviously the relationships are kind of different. Um, there's a lot of, you know, different incentives in play as far as people's responsibilities and, um, that kind of thing. But yeah, I guess the other thing is, I I can't speak to other MOSs, I guess, but, um, at least for us, it was a, you know, Cav Scout unit, um, day to day doing PT, going to the field. It was a job where I really felt like you could, pour all of yourself into it Mm. you know like what you put in is what you get out if you really want to go all the way 100 percent, and you know just uh live and breathe your job you can and you you get like tangible results and feedback from it not only in kind of the performance of your unit but just the bonds that you develop with your um with the people around you Mm. um and that yeah, it's it's super rewarding in that way, but it's also really specific. I think to the unit you end up in. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, it was being part of the platoon and being part of that family unit an additional driver behind your desire, your, your decision to try out for special forces? Yeah, I think so. This is, I guess, really specific to the army, maybe. Um, as far as 
different branches of service have different pipelines going to special operations. But mm-hmm. at least in the Army for an officer um, at the time, basically you have a window. I think Pete might have talked about this, but you have a window to apply and jump into their pipeline yeah. um, where you're an O2 promotable first lieutenant about to become a captain, which is around three and a half, four years. Um, and so I guess the rationale a lot of people have for jumping in is they really enjoyed being on the ground or mm. carrying a rucksack, however you want to term it, you know, being one of the guys and having the ability to be there, be hands-on. And as an officer, that opportunity is really short. It's a really specific period of time. So mm. say if you're an infantry officer, an armor officer, what have you, I mean, you get platoon leader time, which maybe is a year, 18 months, two years, if you're lucky. Um, and then that's pretty much it until you're a company commander. I mean, you can do exo time and still be in a company, but you know, you're doing kind of logistical administrative work. You're not kind of leading soldiers in a tactical direct sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and then even when you're a company commander as a captain, which is probably around five to seven years in, it's really different because you're now a degree removed from your soldiers for the, from the people actually doing the work where you have, you know, platoon leaders, platoon sergeants underneath you. Um, and you're probably in a command post or a talk somewhere physically removed from what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of guys going in, it's the mindset that, Hey, I really enjoyed my platoon time and I kind of want to extend that. And that's, I think a mentality, a lot of the enlisted guys have too, because NSF, um, depending on what you choose to do with your career, you could spend probably most of your career on a team as one of the team guys, if you chose. Yeah. And at least for a captain, it gives you another chance to go back to that environment. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah. A, a way to, uh, extend the glory days in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and that's, well, that's also a driver of why, folks get out a lot of times right after their team time ends. Um, they're just not interested in becoming a staff officer. I guess. <laughs> do, do you feel like, did you get what you wanted out of SF when you went down that road? I mean, that cause it's like a long, <laughs> it's a long additional commitment plus like the pipeline of, of, you know, I guess everybody's definition of misery is a little bit different, but um, discomfort. And so like, how do you feel about your experience in that based on what you hope to get? Yeah. Uh, that's a funny question. Um, because I think that's also something people think about a lot. Um, especially guys who've separated They look back and, you know, wonder, was it all worth it? Um, and for me, I got everything that I wanted and I got a lot of stuff I didn't want too. Um, (laughs) but I think also, um, I don't know. That's also a personal topic for me as far as I think um, for me, I just had a point at which I did some self-reflection. There's definitely um, a time when I kind of had to take a hard look at um, how I thought about the job because I think, you know, the Q courses is long to begin with. I think on paper, well, they've revamped it too. So I think it's a lot shorter now. But back in 2015, 2016, it was, I think, 18 months was the baseline you were looking at. 
And if you're an officer, it was two years ish because you also did um, the captain's career course, kind of like O3 training at the front end. And then if you've recycled anything, it got even longer. Um, two years. Plus additional schooling. I mean, that's like, that's like longer than like some pilot pipelines, you know? Oh. <laughs> Which is, well, I, get, I never really, <laughs> I never really compared those, those two. Um, cause for you is an additional, what, six year obligation. Um, I think from the day you graduate, usually you owe three years is the first, okay. uh, had so they call it, you know, additional service obligation. Mm. Um, I guess full disclosure, I was at Fort Bragg for almost three years, wow. um, which wasn't all Q course, but there was additional schooling I did at Fort Bragg after I graduated before I showed up to my unit. Mm. So it was a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to get back to your question, I guess the question of, did I get everything I wanted out of it? Um, I did, but also I realized at a certain point, maybe that's a, in some ways it can be a problematic question too. Mm. Um, which is a whole nother topic, but um, you know, the military isn't just a job, right? Yeah. Um, and not to get on a soapbox or anything, no, no, but I mean, ultimately you're, you're basically um, signing up to foot a bill that if it ever comes due, could be pretty costly. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, yeah, it's, it's such a personal decision to join yeah. because there's a lot of pros and cons you can kind of, um, look at and decide whether this is going to kind of benefit you in the long run. But I think as far as, you know, why it's called military service, um, it's because a lot of times there's a point at which the math doesn't add up in your favor. Mm. And it's kind of that decision or the commitment you made to continue to do your job. Um, even when it's not benefiting you and probably is possibly is very costly to you and your family. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, the reason I bring that up is I think when you're going through a long training pipeline, especially one like the Q course where it's, it's a pretty high pressure environment, high stakes, because there's a lot of costs to failing out, yeah. whether you're officer or enlisted. Um, it can, you can get kind of into a mindset where you're just trying to get through, you're trying to get your go. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, all just, you're focused on just succeeding, getting your beret and getting to your team. Um, so I think for me, uh, I definitely experienced a lot of that, especially in the later parts of Q course, um, where I was just trying to get through, I was just trying to graduate and that was what I was focused on. And it wasn't until I got out to my first unit and man, maybe a year or two in where I kind of had a moment for reflection and realized that was, you know, how my attitude had changed over time and how that wasn't really a good thing. Mm. Um, in the sense that you felt like you missed critical lessons or um, in what sense was it not a good thing? Well, I guess just personally, I realized how entitled I'd gotten mm. um, where I showed it to my unit. And, you know, looking back at that time, I realized I just wanted to get the team. That's all I cared about was, you know, you know, in a sense, what's in it for me? Am mm. I going to get to be 
on an ODA? Am I going to get to do X, Y, Z things? Um, how can I make that happen? Mm. Uh, as opposed to, you know, looking at it the other way around, which is you're here for the mission. You're here for your people. And so how can I support those things? And it's great if you also benefit and those things align with your personal goals. Um, but ultimately that's what the job is about. You know? Mm. Um, and you know, it's most of the time, like if those, if those things diverge, you don't notice, you know, cause most of your day to day in the military, it's, it's just like doing any other job yeah. where you're just showing up, kind of putting in the work. Um, but I think in the military, especially there, there's some extreme circumstances sometimes where that stuff does matter. Mm. Um, why you're there does matter and comes out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess, I guess to go down this rabbit hole a little more, the reason some of that stuff started coming up for me was because um, I ended up on a, a dive team. So an ODA that specialized in dive operations. Mm. Um, and at least for me personally, and this isn't the case for a lot of people, um, doing stuff in the water was uh, a fear of mine. It was like a worst case scenario, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, luckily I, I made it through all that training and was able to serve on the dive team. But kind of that question came up because we had problems attracting people and keeping people on the dive team because a lot of folks don't want to go through the training. Mm. And so it's like pulling teeth, trying to get people to come over in the first place. And then it's, it can be a really painful process as far as just trying to pass that school and be, you know, I guess, certified in that skill. Uh, because there's a pretty high failure rate. The training can be very physically painful and taxing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a circumstance in which the question of why are you doing this starts to come up and be pretty, pretty relevant on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Hmm. So you didn't choose to go to dive school then? That was kind of... I, yeah, I did not. Um, that was not part of my plan for how does all this benefit fill back <laughs> um yeah i mean it was just you know it's the military so yeah. you get put where you're needed you know yeah um yeah so that's just how it worked out i think i think you're kind of drawing a, an interesting line where it's like when in our careers like obviously we're getting the the first person view so it is it's hard not to think about us and like, what, what do I want out of my career? But the parallel of it being, like you said, military service. And so it's like, it's not really supposed to be about you. In essence, it's about the larger cause, the larger mission people. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting parallel to kind of like, I don't know, I guess, um, point out that it is like, a. you know, I, I think everybody runs into that situation where they either realize it or they don't realize it, that they've made it about them rather than, um, you know, the larger cause. So I think having that opportunity to, to reflect, uh, for you, it's like, it's pretty cool. I think it's, it's a tough question and it, and it's one that comes up, not just in the military, I guess, but it's, you know, what is the value of service? Mm when you're, you're not helping yourself necessarily 
and how much are you willing to pay? Um, I guess a conversation that comes to mind is I have a friend who's a doctor. And um, when COVID first started kicking off, I think there probably were a lot of those conversations too, mm. as far as as a medical professional, you've made a commitment. You know, you haven't necessarily signed your name on a dotted line, yeah. but um, you know, ethically, you have an obligation to help others. But definitely, those frontline workers were doing so at a personal cost. You know, mm. at personal risk, and so. Um, I think there was a question of, well, where do you draw the line? You know, how do you decide for yourself um, what to do in that situation? Do you continue to do your job at personal risk and cost? Um, and what do you do about the folks that I guess um, you're working with or who are working for you? Um, what do you say to them? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, where we arrived is just, it's a personal decision. Um, Cause as far as the why, you know, um, or at least, you know, maybe in a military context, having someone who won't quit or the decision of whether you're going to stick it out, keep pushing forward or whether you're going to say this isn't for me. Yeah. Um, it's a personal decision as a leader. You can't make that choice for someone else. Mm. You're, you're bringing, I've had this thought before of kind of like, and I'm, I'm curious because, cause I feel like when, when I signed up and like you said, like, when you make that commitment, you're basically like saying, I'm willing to give whatever, you know, like a blank check kind of thing. Uh, and so like part of me, like as I've processed it a little bit, is like when you sign up, you almost just write it off, like expect that as the outcome. And then somewhere along the way, you maybe start to realize like that's not a guarantee, you know, like the, like. I'm, you know, there's a good chance of surviving a, my contract, my enlistment, whatever, my career. But so, like, do you feel, I mean, I don't know if you kind of feel similarly to that. And then, like, you, once you kind of start realizing that, like, survival is likely, that maybe the motive becomes more, I don't know, selfish rather than selfless. I don't know if it's kind of like a, a gradient. Or, hmm. I think, I guess for me, um, what that brings to mind is just how at different points, maybe in your time in the military, that I guess what you could call the moral aspect of it, maybe, mm. uh, or the service aspect of it, sometimes is front and center, and a lot of times, or most of the time, it's not. Mm. Um, I guess. I think you touched on this briefly with P2. Um, you know, I, maybe a related question is something like if you were in the military, but you never deployed, you know, you never quote unquote got to do your job. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean as far as how you think about your service? Um, and I guess, you know, the service portion of it, if it's when you're, when the, you know, the costs to you outweigh the benefits to you, um, is that really kind of the bar? Um, I guess what I'd say is, you know, when you're signing up, I think that's the moral decision, the decision point. That's mm -hmm. you're making that commitment and you said you were willing to do that. And so just by merit of making that choice and then showing up every day, um, putting on that uniform, 
Like you are living out that obligation and holding up your end of it. I think a more difficult question then, but usually one that fortunately most people never have to answer. And it's the question that comes up when now actually it is going to cost you. You're going to have to foot that bill. Mm. Um, are you going to follow through with, you know, what you said you would do or for whatever reason, you know, whatever the circumstances are, are you going to opt out of it? Mm. Um, and obviously I think it's admirable when people follow through. Yeah. When people don't follow through, I think certainly they're violating, I guess, kind of that initial commitment. Um, but I guess I can also say it's, you know, that's also such a, usually a tough situation mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you can't really judge a lot of times, um, as far as what's happening. Um, but I guess maybe the flip side of it is just because things never reach that point doesn't then like invalidate, I guess, the service aspect of what you're doing. If that yeah. makes sense. 100%. 100%. Do, do you feel like these reflections and like getting to that point for you, played a role in deciding to exit? I mean, at, at what point did you kind of think like, you know, people get to 10, 11 years. And I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's you're either going all the way or not most of the time. Um, but how did you find yourself deciding to call it quits? Yeah, well, I mean, that specific, I guess, aspect of it, I think is a reason to stay in um, as far as, yeah, I mean, your service is valuable. And I think a lot of folks who do end up staying in, part of that decision is maybe recognizing that um, they're needed. You know, mm. there aren't so many people stepping up to kind of um, continue that service long-term, but I guess overall the decision um, it was pretty specific for us. Um, I guess in line with what we were saying before, as far as we're talking about before, as far as, you know, a lot of times what you do in the military is not going to align with what you had planned for yourself. Mm. Um, I got stationed in Japan, but that wasn't ideal for my wife uh, and me just because she was already working and we uh, requested a base that was stateside. And so what ended up happening was, after I graduated the Q course, uh, we ended up doing long distance for three years, wow. um, which, you know, going into it, we understood that was possible during training, obviously that you might not get the duty assignment that you want. Um, and we made it work, you know, I was able to visit pretty often, but I think as soon as we knew that was going to happen, that we we're going to be separated for so long, it was, um, the writing was kind of, kind of on the wall as far as, Long-term, even if after this we're stationed somewhere where we can be together, um, this is just kind of, this is tough for us as a family. Mm. Um, and so I think the door was open as far as maybe while we're out there, uh, the decision-making factors will change in the other direction. But generally speaking, I think that was the deciding factor for us. Cool. So it came to the point where, you know, your priorities started shifting from, you know, military career more towards family is kind of was the driving factor. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we have a one-year-old now. And awesome. so that was something that we could do 
because last year I was out processing mm. and we moved back together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. Um, what was, I mean, you ultimately, so you, you got out while you were in Japan. So you mm-hmm. out yep. in Japan. What, what, I did. What was that? I mean, once you made up your mind to get out and the transition process, like what was that like? Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are, you know, once they make up their mind, they're super stoked to get out. But then at some point in that process, it like hits them like a ton of bricks. Like I remember like it hit me when I left active duty and like, I like, I didn't eat for like a, two days. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> like, wh- why did I do this? Uh, so for like, for you, what was that process like? And how did you, um, you know, stay on top of it and ensure that it, it went smoothly or did it go smoothly? Hmm. Um, it did go pretty smoothly. Honestly, it's a lot of, it's just up to your first line supervisor as much of your life in the military is, yeah, yeah. um, as far as how you're, yeah. If you have a boss, who's, <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of it also depends on what your unit's doing at the time. Yeah. Um, if they're busy or not busy, but yeah, I looked out and, um, I was taken care of, I guess I'm trying to be careful with how I phrase this because, mm. you know, if you have a rough transition out, it's not necessarily because people don't mm. care about you. True. Um, point, it's point. a lot of, it's just kind of luck of the draw. Yeah. Um, but you need, you really do need time. Mm. And, um, I had that, I was able to take a lot of leave that was saved up because you know in the military you just end up kind of amassing vacation days that you never take yeah um i think that's the most important thing as far as just getting your ducks in a row um for the practical portion of it yeah did you know what you wanted to do like did you know what the next steps were or were you just like i know that this isn't where i'm going anymore so i'm Mm. getting out and i'll figure it out afterwards like um well, let's see. I still don't know what I want to do okay. uh, in, a, in a larger sense. But just in an immediate sense, um, I think usually what happens is you look to people you know who are getting out mm-hmm. and you kind of look at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess for my very specific demographic, a lot of the captains who finish up team time in SF um, and get out, they usually go to business school. So that was kind of... Uh, uh, a popular choice. I knew that, you know, since it's a well-worn path, um, that was kind of what I looked at first. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I had enough time to kind of plan advance, kind of pursue that process even before I had like made my final decision and put in my paperwork. Cause I guess that was also part of it too, was if I was pursuing that and it didn't work out, um, I wanted to have enough, uh, leeway, yeah. to kind of back out of that and say, okay, it looks like I don't have this kind of uh, course of action lined up. It's not going to work out. So I'm just going to hold what I got and stay in the military. Yeah. Um, I don't know that most people have, I guess, the luxury of that time. Yeah. But if you can do that and kind of, um, you know, kind of stick your toes in the water first before you jump in, uh, that's a good thing to do. And when you say stick your toes in the water, like you stuck your toes in the water by applying to business business programs? Yeah. So I guess I didn't put in my packet to separate the paperwork to start that process until after I'd gotten an acceptance letter from a school that I really wanted to go to. Gotcha. How, how many did you apply to? Just out of curiosity. 
Um, let's see. I didn't apply to many. Okay. I want to say I applied to three business schools. Okay. Um, but my, because I started so far in advance of when I thought I might get out, mm. um, the way I thought about it in my mind was just the first year. Um, it was just going to kind of be, uh, you know, a recon. I was going to see where things landed, see where I stacked up and adjust off of that. And I had, I gave myself enough time so that I could apply a second time the following year if things didn't pan out the first year. Gotcha. So you were, um, you were, you know, preparing well ahead if you had, had that much time. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, but you know, that's also really specific to if you're planning to go to school yeah. just because that, um, I guess that timeline to go into one of those programs, whether it's a bachelor's degree or graduate school is so structured and kind of, you have advanced warning. Mm, um, so you can plan off of stuff. Whereas if you're going say into a job or something, very you don't true. have nearly as much lead time. Yeah. Very true. Uh, a little bit of a sidebar. Cause I've, I've noticed that a lot of uh, officers specifically that get out, do go to business school. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, why do you, why did, why is that like, the most, com- I don't even know if it is the most common, but it's, it is a common next step. Like, is there, what is that? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I guess just as a matter of speculation, mm-hmm. I guess, number one, you see other people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you look down LinkedIn, there's, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, there's a ton of people yeah. in that boat. Um, I guess number two is, um, you know, business school, I think specifically full-time MBA is usually for, or a lot of times for career switchers. Mm. Um, and maybe kind of another big block of people going are people whose career fields kind of require an MBA as a check the block in their career progression. Gotcha. But yeah, there's a lot of folks jumping from one career into kind of what uh, MBAs feed gotcha. people into. Um, it's a lot of so, pivot point kind of. Yeah. And I think, it lines up as far as, um, especially if you're coming out of the military with say, uh, I don't know for me, like I don't really have any hard skills I'm walking away with. You know, mm-hmm. I don't have any certifications or technical kind of expertise. Yeah. Um, and so going into say a field that requires something like that probably requires a lot of investment, mm-hmm. um, and commitment to, whereas I think with an MBA, you're kind of kicking the can down the road. Um, and it's already kind of baked into the program as far as helping you f- figure out what job you want to do and then helping you get that job. Mm. Makes sense. Makes sense. I, I, I'm often curious when, when I see people here in person or like, you know, in a book or a magazine, when like they seem to have accomplished like throughout their life a a high level of, and maybe you wouldn't look at it this way, <laughs> but like a, a higher level of like uh, prestigious accomplishments, right? So, you know, you went to Dartmouth for undergrad, special forces, and while you didn't specifically say the school you're going to, but a high level MBA in law program now. Uh, and like trying to understand like what, what gets somebody on that track, because obviously it started you know, a long time ago for you at this point. Um, but what, what do you feel like gets people on that track and how do they stay on that track? 
so that's that's a pretty interesting question. Um, this isn't going to be a helpful answer, but honestly, there's a lot of yeah. a lot of luck in getting help from other people, mm. and a lot of that help is just a matter of chance or things that you don't control. And the other part of it is, from what I've seen, um, kind of those advantages they compound over time or they snowball. Mm. You know, I think the hardest part is the initial, I guess, the start of that chain. But once you have something like that, some kind of advantage or, you know, what have you, um, yeah, it's easier to get the next one. I think mm. like if we're just talking strictly in an academic setting, yeah, I, I mean, I imagine like, say you go to like a really top notch undergrad program, it's going to be a lot easier for you to get into, you know, a grad program that's also top notch, sure. just, you know, not even looking at like the content of what you've been doing with yourself aside from just going to school. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well said. I guess. And then, you know, just very briefly, specifically in my case. Um, yeah. I got really lucky getting into school. Um, I'm kind of convinced that a buddy helped me out. It was, that was kind of the deciding factor. The, um, the school you're at now or Dartmouth earlier? Yeah. Uh, into undergrad. Okay. Cause I think at the time, yeah, at the time they were doing um, a peer letter recommendation. Huh. Um, and I remember, I don't think any other school that I applied to did that. Usually it's a letter of recommendation you get from like a teacher or, you know, like an older person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, she was a friend of mine I grew up with in my hometown and she was already at the school. Cool. And I remember I asked her to write that letter of recommendation for me. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I hardly got in anywhere else. I got a lot of rejections. Hmm. So wow. in my mind, that's kind of like what made the difference. Wow. Um, and then also just briefly like the Q course, um, there are a lot of stages where the only reason I got through was the help of other people around me, hmm. um, much, much better soldiers than me. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a very well answered question um and i think like to those that are younger that may be listening like understanding the compound effect of of life choices and like while it you know when you're when you're young and you're it's hard to envision the future those those small choices don't seem to be that significant in uh, the long run but like you said like once once they do start compounding it all becomes very apparent as to how they all work together. So I guess I would also add that, you know, I guess this specific question we're talking about, mm -hmm. it's also a really specific yardstick of True. Um, how you're defining maybe what's success. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's a whole nother discussion too, yeah. as far as, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point too. Uh, I mean, with that said, do you, do you feel like your measurement of success has changed over, you know, the years? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think that's just the nature of getting older and living more life is your priorities change. Yeah. Um, I think, especially when you're younger, um, Man, I guess one of your worst enemies is kind of comparison, you know, mm. um, yeah. 
sizing yourself up against whoever you consider to be your peers. Um, and I think as you get older, that definitely starts to go away. Hopefully mm. um, just because you realize, you know, uh, you're really the only one who's going to live out your life, who really knows everything that's happened, um, what's going on and who's going to kind of be the um, person on the recipient of mm. all the choices you make. Um, I guess I kind of started to feel that lesson. I mean, everyone knows that on paper, but yeah. when I separated last year um, in October, basically I left the military and I stayed at home with our son. Um, and at the time my wife was working in Hong Kong. So I moved over there. So completely removed from the people I just spent a whole lot of time with totally different country and cultural context. Nobody knew anything about the U S military or cared, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think that was a good reality check just because when you're at a certain company or workplace or in an organization or, you know, in a social context, people are really keyed into kind of these, uh, I don't know, these micro indicators of mm -hmm. maybe your status or success. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, in the military, that, that person who has that skill badge because they went to that special school yeah. um, or the person who just maxed out the PT test yeah. um, or just blew by everybody on the last uh, group run. Um, but yeah, as soon as you leave and you realize nobody else cares about any of that, yeah. and it's not that that stuff isn't important or valuable. It's just realizing that um, that yardstick vanishes, you know, um, yeah. That that reminds me of like I mean, you know I'm sure it's the same way in the army that is in the Marine Corps. As as soon as anybody's wearing their dress uniform and they got their ribbons on, it's like it's just the you don't even look at the person's face. The first thing you look at is their ribbon staff, you know. And it's just like it's part of the culture, you know. And as soon as you get out, and nobody ever wears that uniform again, it's like all of a sudden that ribbon stack doesn't really matter. You know? <laughs> There's a whole different metric. And so while you're, while you're in that culture and like amongst those people, it seems like the most important thing, but mm. in the grand scheme of life, it's, it's far less significant. Mm. But. I guess another thing that makes me think of is it's really hard to overcome your environment or your circumstances. Mm. Um, so I guess the lesson that I took away from it isn't necessarily that, you know, Hey, if you're in the military or if I was, you know, when I was in the army, um, it wasn't necessarily that I should have changed my attitude or kind of had my focus somewhere else. I guess it's just understanding that, you know, the way you behave, the way you think, everything's just feeding off of what's around you. Um, and I mean, that's okay. But I guess it was also a reminder to me that um, for kind of the big life choices, especially the ones where it's, you know, it's right for yourself in the big picture, but it's hard to live out day to day. I think that's something I think about sometimes is, um, well, how can I take that decision out of my hands mm. um, and make it something that's, you know, I don't know, built into my environment or I don't know how else to phrase it, but I guess that's kind of, coming back to the idea for 
uh, why I joined the army in the first place or how I thought about it. Yep. Um, yeah. Cool. Super cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like throughout you've, you've been open in the lessons that you've learned and, uh, kind of sharing your wisdom. But if, if you were to compile all the lessons learned into one piece of advice for those that are maybe considering a similar route to you, what would you give them? Hmm. I mean, that's a really difficult question. It is. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Um, Well, I guess, hmm. I mean, this is so, you know, lessons learned looking back, they're really hard to apply going forward Mm. because usually it's the kind of thing where, you know, you don't appreciate or you can't appreciate maybe until it's 2020 in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think one of the hardest, well, one of the things I had the hardest time dealing with personally was just, um, failure Mm. um at multiple points (laughs) throughout my time in the army Um, and i think a big thing i took away from the military was just learning how to deal with it in a constructive way Mm. Um, yeah i mean my first major taste of failure was i went to ranger school which is kind of like an infantry uh school two months long you're just kind of thrown in there and it's uh constant field training basically but um i went as a lieutenant right after i finished my armor training um but before i went to my first unit 2011 and just did horrible i had no idea what i was doing failed out Mm. um and so that was a pretty uh significant personal experience for me um just wrapping my head around what the heck just happened yeah um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there was a lot of things, uh, that had to happen as far as me figuring all that stuff out. And eventually I went back six years later and passed. Mm. Um, but I just remember kind of, um, yeah, how tough that was. And that wasn't, you know, it was the first major failure. There were obviously several more in the Q course as well. Sure. Um, but I think that's probably the biggest hurdle I had to climb was how do you kind of accept failure Mm. and move forward rather than, you know, getting all wrapped around the axle about it and letting it get in the way of things. Um, Yeah, that's a good point. And it's almost like it's, it's almost advantageous to fail and learn that lesson earlier on (laughs) in a way. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's a healthy way to look, at it, <laughs> look back at it. Um, but you know, at the time, like, um, I mean, it's funny to say this now looking back, but I remember at the time after I fell out of ranger school, it was just such a, uh, a weight on my mind, mm. you know, cause I knew, I knew buddies who went there and passed. Um, it was just a source of shame for me. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of, I think what drove me to, you know, I don't train harder during that time period. Um, yeah. Mm. So I don't know. 
Um, I mean, if you're the kind of person who can turn failures into kind of a source of source of strength immediately yeah, and just let that push you forward, that's great. But I also think, I mean, failure is failure. You know, it's really hard to be constructive about failure when it's actually personally important to you. Yeah. Uh, um, so I think those things are going to, they're going to hurt no matter what. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you, Phil. I know I appreciate uh, you sharing your story and uh, you know, I, I, I wrap up with uh, kind of just two routes for closing questions, whether you've transitioned or not. And uh, given that you're just over a year out now, um, based on your experience in the military, would you recommend the military to somebody else? Hmm. I think what's giving me pause is what we were talking about before the service aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, practically speaking, um, I think most of the time, Yes, as far as it's definitely kind of enhancing to a person's career and also, I think, just personal development. Mm. Um, but yeah, what's giving me pause is just um, a very significant portion of what it means to serve, mm. sign up for the military is just the fact that it may not work out in your favor, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, maybe a yes with a big uh, caveat. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very, you know, I, I wonder if we didn't have the conversation we did, if you would still have that caveat or like on front of mind. Um, but it's a, a unique answer. So I appreciate that. Um, I guess we kind of talked about this, but you know, how did you know it was time to get out and what was the most, and what was the hardest part about leaving? So I guess more for you since we already discussed how you knew, what was the hardest part for you about leaving the army? Hmm. Um, probably the, honestly, the, the transition afterwards, um, not, you know, the transition as far as out processing and kind of planning things as you're getting out of the military, but, um, maybe adjusting to your new life after you've left. Hmm. Um, which I still haven't really figured out. Yeah. Um, I have some friends who got out, say, you know, June, July, and then started classes the following month. And I'm always thinking maybe that's a better way to do it because you don't have so much time to mm. uh, overanalyze things and get in your head about what's going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is a big adjustment, especially if if it's the only job you've ever done and it's been for a long time. Yeah. Um, figuring out. I guess what life looks like moving forward. Mm. Um, yeah. Cause it's not just a matter of, you know, maybe I day to day what you're doing necessarily, but I think, um, yeah, you can get really invested in your work and it's kind of a certain, a certain mindset you have to be in sometimes. Um, say in SF, if you're on a team, you know, the life you're living is everything for the mission, everything for my team. Um, and so, well, I just started business school, you know, and day to day, I guess it's really different as far as you're there 
to benefit yourself. You know, <laughs> everything is, you know, trying to figure out how can I kind of advance my own career mm. and find opportunities for myself. Um, it's just a really different, it just feels really different. I yeah. guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, Makes sense. Makes sense. Hmm. What do you think separates those who have a smooth transition versus a not so smooth transition? Hmm. I think a lot of it's time, having enough time to plan ahead and Hmm. make sure you have, (laughs) I mean, you've probably heard this a million times. So making sure that you have a plan for what you're going to do afterwards. Um, yeah. And I guess the other portion of it is not necessarily something you can control, but maybe having some time to reflect and having some perspective on, Hmm. um, why you're leaving, what you appreciated about, your experience in the military, um, but also what you're looking forward to and kind of being realistic about the pros and cons about making that switch. Totally. Like it. Do you have a most influential book that you've ever read? Um, I don't think anything comes to mind as far as like a single pivotal book, but mm-hmm. the last thing I read that I found really useful was um i remember i read this i think it was like a pamphlet uh by someone named admiral stockdale i don't know if you've ever heard of him he has the uh well he has the distinction of being i think the longest the longest held or highest ranking pow in the vietnam war for the navy maybe he was a naval aviator mm. i think he was shot down taken captive. I don't remember how long exactly he was in captivity. It was something crazy, like five or seven years. Wow. Um, but he wrote a pamphlet. I think he's written several things actually about his experiences, but specifically the pamphlet I read was, I think it was called courage under fire, Mm. but it was about stoicism, Mm. um, the philosophy of stoicism and how it got him through his POW experience. Interesting. And his background was kind of unique too. I think, um, you know, he was a career naval officer. And I think as part of kind of the, um, you know, you do graduate degrees usually as part of your career progression. If you stay in uh, longer than, I don't know, longer than a certain point. And his mm-hmm. master's, I think he did in philosophy and studied stoicism mm-hmm. just out of academic interest before wow. all this happened. And then it just happened to actually be something that he had to live out. Wow. Um but I read it because I can't remember how I heard about it, but I'd heard about it and it was maybe a little bit before I went to seer school, Mm. um, which is survival school in the military. Um, and so it was kind of on my mind, but yeah, I found that really useful as far as it was just all about how do you deal with suffering in your life? Mm. Um, how do you get through it? And especially, um, with regard to not necessarily minor, issues, but just an overwhelming amount of kind of adverse things happening, um, where maybe it's not so easy to find a silver lining Mm. and kind of rationalize it in your mind of, um, as far as this is going to work out for me or it's, you know, this is what's best in the end kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's also, uh, worth a whole nother conversation, but you have to look at that. Sounds interesting. Very cool. Lastly, this one's a, 
<laughs> I was I always hesitate with this one. Do you have a favorite military <laughs> or veteran discount that you that you like and take advantage of often? Yeah, well, I heard you asking this before, and yeah. I I uh, thought about it and came up with a decent answer. Um, for me, it's not a specific one necessarily because mm-hmm. I think there's a few ways to um, get this, but it's basically any kind of discount you can get on um, wool socks. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and yeah, so uh, this is actually a buddy of mine who really pushed me hard to get into merino wool. Mm. Um, so I'm not knowledgeable about, you know, what differentiates merino wool from say just regular wool. But for me, you know, I was always just one of those people who was a big believer in using what you're issued. Yeah. And so for years <laughs> I just wore the, you know, the green issued socks. I yeah. just bought more of them at the clothing store on base. Um, I just made it work, you know, but, uh-huh. um, it wasn't, I think until I was on a team in SF that I actually started using nicer socks, Yeah. which is, um, you know, weird to think about because any other piece of kit like your boots, people get really into and um, mm. invest a lot of money in. But yeah, I just held out in the socks for so long. And once I made the switch to nicer socks, it was <laughs> Game just made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. especially if you're, you know, going to be on your feet walking around a lot, yeah. um, you know, walking around in wet socks, wet boots. Mm. Uh, yeah, that makes a big difference. So I'm, I'm curious uh, up here. Uh, darn tough i don't know if you're familiar with darn tough but i am yep um do they give them a discount because if they do i i missed um but did you have a did you have a brand specifically in mind that gives military discounts for great marina wool socks kind of there's a website that well maybe i'm dating myself but it used to be called promotive a long time ago i think now it's called Expert. expert voice uh, yeah yeah experticity yeah. or something yeah yeah mm-hmm. i think there's a few companies on there like cool. darn tough smart wool cool. um yeah whichever you pick but basically having nicer socks is a, a big big plus yeah always got to take care of the feet you know <laughs> definitely yeah no kidding i mean yeah <laughs> awesome well yeah I'll, I, i'll add that to the list of of good deals but Cool, Phil. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, spend uh, spending your Friday evening, and hopefully it's uh, no same to you. Yeah, great. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck, luck in uh, business school and beyond, and I look forward to seeing where your career takes you. Hey, everybody! I hope you enjoyed that episode with Phil. I know I really enjoyed it. It was, I know, I know it was a little bit different than normal episodes, um, but I think having some introspective and deeper thoughts associated with our military service and what that actually means is um, is important to have, so that we don't get lost in the shuffle and too focused on like what is in it for me kind of thing. And so, I want you to all make sure that you're all continuing to see the big picture and continuing to recognize service for what it is uh, and it's more supposed to be selfless than selfish so i hope you guys were inspired by that story and inspired by phil's experiences and insight i look forward to seeing you guys next week same time same place released every tuesday see you guys next time